Good morning. Open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be going through verses 3 through 8. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with an additional note, if you'll notice. You have two outlines in your in your uh, bulletin, at least you should have. Uh, and the one we're going to go through, first of all, is, of course, this one that's up on up online right now, the gospel. The good news, how should I respond to the gospel? And uh, we're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about how the gospel message has been uh, brought to us. You know, if it wasn't for the gospel, we probably would have never met each other. We've, we've not had been a part of this fellowship, and we've not been able to be a part of one another in this family because of the gospel message. And, uh, and as I was going through the, the notes again this last week, getting ready for today, because we already went through part of it, and I just I mentioned to you that uh, I wanted you to make sure that we, uh, that we understand the gospel message, because there's so much confusion about the gospel. We hear it all the time, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And the gospel message is not uh, my testimony. The gospel message is not uh, you know, feeding the hungry and feeding the poor, though I should share my testimony. The gospel message is not the, uh, uh, the things that we do in church to be able to make church a, a better place or to make it inviting. The gospel message is not uh, going out to Africa or wherever the case may be and uh, feeding people or helping them build water re- reservations or, you know, those things that we all do. Those things are all what we should do as believers. But the gospel message is very clear, and it should be. But somehow it has been confused with a lot of things. They, they believe, a lot of people believe that if uh, I just go to a restaurant and pray that I'm sharing the gospel message, that if I give a tract out to somebody else, I'm, I'm sharing the gospel message. But the gospel message, and, we need a, and I, I go back to it all the time, at least I try to, at least to clarify what the gospel message is. And, uh, <clears throat> and the, what we talked about last week is that the gospel is good news to believers. Number one, the good, the gospel message is good news. And before we can know what the good news is, or even if I want the good news, some people don't even believe that there's good news. Why, how much, how better can it get? I mean, I'm living the dream. I'm living the life. I'm doing all that, uh, that I can do in my life. And so things are working well. Um, I don't know. What else do I need? Let me cool it down here just a little bit, at least in my end. And, uh, and, but the, you need, the reason why the gospel message doesn't seem to sink in is because we've muddled the holiness of God. And we've belittled His presence and His power and, and what He's done for us on the cross. We have taken all that the church has to offer, the hope of the world, and we've made it just one big show or a fellowship or a, uh, just a social gathering when we all come together and just have coffee and donuts and, you know, hear the pastor rant, rant and rave for a little while and get some points of how to live life and bring our kids so that somebody can watch them. You know, there was a time when, uh, well, I, I think it still is in some places where you can bring your children and uh, they give you a number and they give you a beeper or now they just take your cell phone number and, and then you pick them up after after they're done. and. And uh, what some people were doing at some of these churches were dropping off their kids and going Christmas shopping, you know, during church. They'd have instant babysitters come back in an hour, hour and a half after the service was done and, and uh, pick them up after that. And, and so it's, it's kind of very humiliating and belittling of God when we don't understand why it is that we share the gospel, the gospel message, the good news, because there is bad news. There is bad news. We went over that last week. And, and the gospel message is because we have done sin. We have sinned from the very beginning. The moment I lied, the moment, I, I, the moment I've thought of impure thought, we sin. 
As a matter of fact, Paul kind of capsulizes the whole thing. He summarizes it in this historical content of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, where he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You see, Paul had received this. Now, if we go according to what most scholars tell us, that Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, was the first letter that Paul wrote. And so therefore, anything that he received, he didn't receive it from Jesus Christ himself while he was alive like the apostles did. Because remember, Paul used to be Saul and he was persecuting these believers of the people of the way and trying to get them out of the way. And he was persecuting them, and Saul was on his way to Damascus, and, and all of a sudden this bright light that blinded him knocked him to the ground. And a voice came out from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you kicking against the goads? This is going to happen whether you like it or not. You might as well get on board. And that's when he changed his name over to Paul. And Saul was discipled by Jesus Christ himself. Most people believe in the wilderness for at least three years. We find that in Galatians. And, and we, we also find that Paul just got to into the law and started to see on what he received from Jesus Christ. Because he goes on to say that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So we have to go back into the scriptures, which what they had at that time was the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it is very clear on what Messiah was supposed to do, who Messiah was supposed to be. Messiah and Christ are synonymous. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed one, as Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one. So Messiah and Christ are the same thing. And in the Old Testament, they were looking forward for Messiah. And it's interesting because in the Old Testament, and a lot of the scholars and a lot of the, the Pharisees and, and those that followed God and read the scriptures, they, they had specific signs of who he was going to be and how he was going to be born. Born of a virgin. We, we knew he was going to be born in Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, they knew everything about Messiah. Remember the story? And we'll talk about that when Christmas time comes around. The wise men came from the east, from the orient, and they came looking for that who was called the king of the Jews. We saw the star, which was again a prophetic sign in the Old Testament. Where is he to be born? Herod went to the Pharisees and they went, well, it says here in the Bible that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And Herod tells him, well, go find him so that when you go to worship him, I want to worship him also. Of course, Herod had some ulterior motives. He wanted to kill this supposed king of the Jew. But these words, these scriptures, these writings had been already written and prophesied about Messiah coming into the world. Those that were casting out demons and those that were healing people prior to Christ, they always knew what to look for. They always knew how to cast out demons, how to heal people that were probably blind. Or, and they used salves and ointments and all kinds of other things to, to help people. But there were three things that they couldn't do. And three things that they were looking for that Messiah would do. Number one, Messiah would cure leprosy. See, no other person was able to cure leprosy from the time of Moses. So they understood that when Messiah comes, he would be able to cure leprosy because nobody else can do it. Number two, he would be able to heal a man, a blind man that was born from birth, blind from birth. Don't know if you remember in John chapter 9 when Jesus was walking into the, by the temple and there was a man sitting there and the disciples asked him, you know, this, this blindness, and this is their thought, this blindness, because they couldn't heal it. 
It had to be so deeply seeped in sin. Somebody had to have sinned for you to be born that way. And only Messiah was going to be able to cure and heal this man or a man like this. And when, when the disciples look, saw this man, they asked Jesus, well, who sinned? Jesus, we know you know everything. Was it his parents or was it this man that he was born blind? And Jesus, remember what he said, no, he, neither his parents nor he sinned, but so that the glory of God could be shown to you. And he healed him. As a matter of fact, he walks up and goes into the, into the temple and they're seeing, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? He says, well, I was blind. Now I see. Well, who healed you? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew. I don't know. But all I know is that I couldn't see and now I can see. And the third thing that Messiah was going to be able to do was cast out a demon that was mute. See, in order for the people of that day to cast out any demons, they had to find out who that demon was. And they would ask them, what is your name? And in the name of God Almighty, the Jehovah God, we cast you out. And they would say his name and they would cast him out. Don't know if you remember the story when Jesus went across the sea and met this man. The first thing he asked him, what's your name? Now, a, dumb, a mute, dumb uh, demon couldn't say his name. And so therefore, only Jesus Christ or Messiah can do that, which was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ did that. He cast out a demon that was mute. Three signs that he himself fulfilled, yet they wouldn't believe him. They would not put their trust in him and claim him to be Messiah. And so when you look at what Paul is saying here and you understand according to the scriptures, there were a lot of, there's a lot of uh, information in just that portion of scripture, you need to know that there's a lot of information about Jesus Christ coming the first time. There are over 300 prophecies of him coming the first time. And there's twice as many, almost almost three almost a thousand. There's almost uh, three times as many, I should say, almost a thousand prophecies of him coming the second time. If he came the first time, we know that he'll be here the second time. And he says, what I receive that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And as he's talking to the people, you know, you've read it, you understand that this was supposed to happen, that he was supposed to die, the suffering servant was supposed to die, that he was supposed to be buried and he was going to be resurrected. The scriptures tell us this. And so what Paul just did, he summarized the Old Testament in this portion of scripture and he shared with them that not only did he die, buried and resurrected, and that's what we say, we celebrate Easter because he was, he was killed, he was buried, and he resurrected. But the way the scripture pro- professes it and claims it and shares it about Messiah is of utmost importance. This is why the gospel message is the greatest message that you will ever hear. You need to know the gospel message. For your heart, for your benefit, for your salvation, and the salvation of those that God is going to save. And the Bible tells us that he appeared to Cephas, then to the other twelve. And uh, in Isaiah 53, 5 is probably, Isaiah 53 is the portion of scripture that was prophesied about Jesus Christ 800 years prior to Christ even coming on the scene. And talks about his crucifixion, talks about his suffering, talks about how he's beat to a pulp that he wasn't even recognized, how, how he, he came as a lamb unto the slaughter and didn't even open up his mouth. It talks about, it's as if the writer, Isaiah himself, is sitting at the cross and just writing everything that is happening. As a matter of fact, if you read Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, it it is written in such a way that the writer, Isaiah, is in the future looking back at what took place. He's writing about an event that he's already seen by the vision, by the prophetic vision of God himself as to what was to take place. 
And he wrote it before it even happened. And when you read the, the scriptures of how Jesus or Messiah was supposed to come, they, they, they were waiting for Messiah. As a matter of fact, they asked John the Baptist, are you the Christ? Or are you the anointed one? Are you the one that we are supposed to be waiting for? He says, no, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandals, let alone be the one. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. That's all I am. I'm just preparing the way until he spots him. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not sins, but sin. Singular. The one sin that will cast all humanity to damnation. See, Jesus forgives your sins. And that's what most people are looking for. I want my sins forgiven. I want to be clean. I want to be, you know, without guilt and shame. And, you know, but, but that other part, you know, I, I like my sin. I like where I'm at. I like involved in it. it. It brings me pleasure. And sin does. We'll see that in just a little bit. Sin does bring pleasure. And people like hanging out in it because it's fun. Otherwise, if it wasn't fun, nobody would do it. But the, the outline that you have right now in front of you is, I, I got this from uh, John MacArthur. He, he wrote out a list of eight ways in which a believer should respond when we have believed in the gospel. And I'm just going to run right through this for you because this is how every believer who has believed Jesus Christ, has given their life to Christ, has surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and know that they are saved. These are eight ways that we should be responding. We should be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Just like Jesus did, just like the apostles did, just like the prophets did, just like the evangelists did, just like teachers and believers of all ages that have come to know Christ, they proclaim the gospel message. Number two, we should be defending the gospel. Always defending the gospel. Don't make excuses for the gospel. Don't try to water it down to, so that somebody can probably accept it. The gospel message is the gospel message. You have sinned. You're going to hell unless you repent. That's it. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to die. And it's not a very pleasant message. As a matter of fact, here, well, I'll go there here in just a little bit. Uh, Philippians 1.16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, Paul says. I'm always defending the gospel. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Defend the gospel's truthfulness, integrity, uh, solidness, and just defend it all the way. Number three, I need to be advancing the gospel. I need to be advancing the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to work hard to promote, to advance, striving side by side, and do whatever we can to advance this gospel message. The gospel demands of us discipline and strenuous effort. Number four, we need to pursue. We need to be pursuing fellowship in the gospel. And not fellowship with just anybody, but fellowship with believers that are rooted and grounded in the gospel message. You'll find you try to, you try to uh, connect or build a fellowship or build some sort of an, an alliance with anybody that's outside of the gospel. They're either going to make fun of you, they're going to belittle you, they're going to think of you less because you believe this fairy tale of a Jesus that died on the cross. Yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, but you know what? It, it doesn't have any significance for the world, but it does to another believer. You and another believer have the understanding of what Jesus Christ went through for you and what, where you were at. 
And you have this, this message together that, that you know of what, what, you're, what you were saved from. In Acts 2.42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowshipping, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. They devoted themselves because they said, this is the gospel message. Well, you know, when Peter preached that message and 3,000 were saved, they were cut to the heart because Peter just laid it out. You murdered him. Your leaders murdered him. And you guys just went along with it. You knew about Messiah. And he gives them this history lesson about Messiah. And then they were cut to the heart and they said, what, what do we do? And I've had people ask me that when I share the gospel message and I share with them on how a wicked man is and the things that we deserve. I, I usually st- stop and pause there and I says, you know, you need to be holy. God is holy. And you know, that's, that's not going to happen. And this last time I shared that with somebody, the young man said, so what do I do? Thank you. I'm glad you asked. What shall we do should be our response. Have mercy on me, God, for what I have done. Jesus didn't ask them to raise, excuse me, Peter didn't ask them to raise their hand. He didn't ask them to come forward. There are ushers up here willing to pray for you. He didn't ask them to fill out a card, say a special prayer. He just gave them the command to repent. Repent. And we'll talk a little bit more about repentance in just a little bit. But repentance is more than just saying, okay, I accept Jesus Christ. It's a whole change of life. We need to suffer for the gospel. By those that have received the gospel, we need to be suffering for the sake of the gospel. We must be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Thank God that we haven't gotten to the point where we literally have to suffer in chains or in cages or being beheaded or caught on fire for the gospel of message. Yet many of you do grow through some sort of persecution. You're either ousted by your family or your friends or made fun of by your coworkers. And, uh, you know, for those that are celebrating on Sunday, come on, we're going to watch the game. And it's going to be a good game. I, I'm going to church. What are you going to church with? What's wrong with you, man? This is the best game of the year. You know, you just, I, I got Tebow. I got, I can record it. I can look it out on YouTube or whatever the case may be. But people always persecute the Christians in one way, shape, or form or the other. You may not have experienced it to the fullest extent as the way it's being done throughout the world. But you have experienced some sort of persecution. We need to be ready to be suffering for the gospel. Number six, representing the gospel by godly living. We're to make sure that our lives do not hinder the gospel. We need to make sure that what we say and what we do is what matches up. We need to walk our talk. If you're a believer, you are walking in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, when God said, do not use the Lord's name in vain, he never meant, I mean, I'm sure people didn't do that, but that, that, that command is not, you know, don't say cuss words. Don't use God as a cuss word. Nobody, nobody in their right mind ever thought they would put God and the other word together to make a cuss word. As a matter of fact, most people wouldn't even say the name of God. But when God says, do not use the name of the Lord God in vain. He is saying, you are my child. You are my called ones. You are my chosen one. And because I have chosen you and given you life, you represent God. And that name that is in you, don't use it in vain. Don't. That is a high command. If you call yourself a Christian, do not use that Christian name as a get out of jail card, but I'm a Christian. I, you know, I do, well, yeah, I messed up. But, you know, no. We need to represent the gospel by godly living. Number seven, refusing to be ashamed of the gospel. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I preached the message here some time ago when we were going through the book of Romans, and I said, ashamed of the gospel? Why would Paul say that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Of course he wasn't. We know that. He proclaimed it and preached it everywhere. But if you understood what the gospel message meant during those days, they would, the, the Greeks would say, you're, you're proclaiming a God, first of all, a God that became human. Yeah, I don't think that's possible. You know, that doesn't happen. The gods, they, inter, they interact with us, but they don't become human because we're terrible. We're immoral. We're, we're sinners. And gods don't come down here to become humans. But you're saying your God did? Okay. And then they kill him? Come on, man. What kind of God is that? Who would want to worship a God like that? And then you say he came back to life. Okay. Our gods are all over the place. We have plenty of gods. And it was a scandal. It was, it was just something that, you know, why would you want to believe something like this? And so Paul, right off the top, says, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. I'll tell you, you might not believe this. You in Rome, especially, have all these different gods, and we are not to be ashamed of this gospel that Jesus Christ came to proclaim. To the Jews, it was unheard of. You know, no, there's only one God. There's no other gods. It's, you know, so it was a, a stumbling block to the Jews, and it was stupidness, foolishness to the Greeks, and, and it was, and so, if you really think about it, the gospel message was really, truly something to be ashamed of. But the power that the gospel carries is number eight, realizing the divine power in the gospel. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The gospel message, you don't have to be clever. You don't have to be persuasive. You don't have to play music in the background to get people all emotionally charged to come forward and to cry. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is proclaim the gospel message. The Holy Spirit does the rest. Either he does or he doesn't. Okay? Either he changes that heart. He does. And if the Holy Spirit does not change his heart, I don't care how much persuasion you do, how much money you throw at it, what, whatever you do, you're not going to change that heart. And we have to get to that point to understand that my responsibility is to share the gospel. It's the Holy, Holy Spirit's responsibility to do the saving. That's his job. And we need to understand that. We'll talk some more about that. I don't have to be clever. We need to realize that it carries a divine empowerment. The power of the gospel does not come from this cleverness of persuasiveness, but it comes from the Holy Spirit. And as we went through this, this outline last week, we ended up in the gospel message is received by faith. The gospel message is received by faith. In, in verse 4 of Colossians 1, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. He gives thanks. Paul gives thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes that God is the one who is owed thanks. Not Paul, not Epaphras, not anybody else, but God. You know, a lot of times people, there was, there was one time that uh, this, this man came up to Billy Graham and he tells the story that this man was just stumbling drunk and he came up to him and he says, Billy Graham, I want you to know something. You saved my life. About five years ago, you saved my life at one of these crusades. And Billy Graham looks at this drunk man and says, you know, it must have been me because if it was Jesus Christ, you wouldn't be in this situation again. So, yeah, you know, I'm sorry that it, you think it was me because if that's the case, you got saved by the wrong person. And that's what a lot of people do. They put their faith in the pastor, the leader, the evangelist, uh, the so-called prophets or apostles that are out there. Paul is thanking God. 
I thank God for your salvation. I thank God for the faith that you have. I thank God that you have faith in Jesus Christ and no one else. Because you see, it's by grace that you're saved. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. The, the faith that you have is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Where the subject line is in Greek, it, trans, it takes all of that verbiage and puts it on the word faith. It is by grace that you've been saved. Okay, now you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, this faith that you have. And I know a lot of people are, are well, of course, you know, grace is also by faith, and, and that is given to us by God, but the emphasis is on faith. It is the gift of God. In 1 Timothy 1.13, look at this, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It overflowed. I couldn't do it. He had to overflow me. He had to give me. We talked about faith last week. What is faith? Faith, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it's not something that you wish for, I desire, you know, I hope I get it type of thing. No, in, in, the, in biblical terms, in the New Testament, hope is an expectation. I know it's coming. I am putting all my hope, all my expectations. I am awaiting this, whatever, faith. And when you have that kind of faith, you're awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. You're awaiting your presence in the presence of, of Jesus Christ. You are awaiting to be taken up either through the rapture or through death. To be in God's presence, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Faith means to be persuaded that something is true and to trust in it. You put all this faith in it. Far more than mere intellectual thinking or thought, it involves obedience. Faith always involves obedience. Always. The concept of obedience is equated with belief throughout the New Testament always. When you have faith, you obey. You see, a lot of people say they have faith. And James says, well, you say you have faith? Well, I got works. You know, what, what, what good is your faith without works? It's dead. If you have faith, then you will work out your salvation. You will obey what God is saying. And there are many people that are disobedient to God's word, yet claiming to have saving faith. And it's further from the truth. It is God who gives you this faith. John 6, tells us, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Philippians 1, 6, Because God gives you that faith, guess what? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is he who started that work. It is he who gave you that faith. It is he who holds you. And because he gave it to you, he holds you, and, he, and he's bestowed you with this faith, faith guess what? He's going to see it on the completion. You won't lose it. It goes to the end. Faith always leads to obedience. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Faith, beloved, is an active, working faith. You, you know this faith. You believe in Jesus Christ. You operate in it. And you put all your trust in it. And if Jesus says to do something, you do it. If he says don't do it, you don't do it. Because there's going to come a time. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But those who believe in his Son, they will. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey God. There are those that just don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't want to have any relationship with God. They don't know God. And those that do know God, they don't obey Him. There's going to be this, this flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those two groups. 
those that want nothing to do with God, and those that know God and are disobedient to God. Beloved, faith always brings obedience. And being made perfect, he became the source of all eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, in Acts chapter 6, as the gospel is being spread, people are starting to hear the word. And those that were the hardest to get across to were the Pharisees. They were the religious right, the righteous people. We know God. We know the commandments. We, we know it forwards and backwards. Come on. You're telling me that I, I need salvation? But in Acts chapter 6, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests, those that were part of the Sanhedrin, the priests, they became obedient to the faith. When you commit your life to Christ, obedience follows faith. And sometimes people tell me, oh, it's hard to do this. Yeah, because you're trying to do it on your own strength. You got to do it according to what God has given you, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Romans 16, 26, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. See, faith is not just saying, okay, I believe. I, I have faith. I know that God exists. I know that he died on the cross. I know that he resurrected. Faith always brings obedience. Biblical faith is not just a leap in the dark. It is based on the fact and grounded in evidence, in the evidence of your life, in the evidence of those that are around. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned earlier, James chapter 2, he says in verse 14, What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it? Can that faith save him? That was James' thought. You know, you say you have faith, but I don't see it. Can that faith, that faith that you say you have, is that going to save you? You believe that God is one? Well, that's good. I'm glad you believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Come on. You believe that there's a, there's a God? Well, guess what? The demons even believe that. And in James 2.26, it says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Those are the words from James to the church in Jerusalem. And he says, you say you have faith, put it into action. Faith always has, leads you to obedience. And repentance is the initial element of the saving faith, but it, but it cannot be dismissed as, as simply another word for believing. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, the changing of the mind. Meta is, a, is, the, uh, is the word that we use sometimes for um, you know, metamorphosis, the way a, a, a caterpillar metamorphosizes into a butterfly. Brand new, it's born again. Beautiful picture of repentance. Anoya is your knowledge, your news, your mind. Meta, you know, being born again. Meta, being changed of mind. Changing the way you think. Changing your mind. Changing repentance in saving faith involves three elements. Turning to God, turning from evil, and an intent to serve God wholeheartedly. I've always said that one of the biggest indicators of your saved life is your desire to know God more. Is your desire to dive into His Word, to hear the messages of God, to be able to, to know this God that saved you. Why did you save me? And the more I come to find out that I find out about God and I learn about God, the more, I, the more sin that I see. As a matter of fact, uh, there's times that, you know, the closer I seem to get to God, the further I feel away from Him. Because I, I recognize my sinfulness. I recognize all the flaws. And, and the more that I dive into knowing God, it is scary. It is frightening. It, I'm like Isaiah, Lord, woe is me. I, I, I've seen the Lord high and lifted up. 
For I am, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips who lives a man amongst the men of unclean people. And we come to that point, the realization that, that I want to get close to God. I, I recognize I've turned to God and I'm turning from my evil and I want to know God more. And it is that one thing, you know, it, and you know, it, it, turning from evil. There was a time that I wouldn't have to describe it or explain it or to share it with you. Okay, this is what evil is. Because in today's culture, like Isaiah 5.20 tells us, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we see a lot of evil now that many of you can recognize, that a lot of the people think it's okay. You know, in today's culture, people think it's still, it's okay. It's all right. God, God knows. I mean, He knows my heart. He knows, he knows my intentions, so I, he doesn't mind if I live with my girlfriend or my boyfriend because he knows my heart. It's not evil anymore, living in sin. As a matter of fact, it's probably praise. You know, it's better you do that because if you get married, then you have to go through all that trouble of getting divorced. People plan their divorce before they even get married. <laughs> kind of some weird thinking, but that's the way our culture is. And I can, I can go on, I can go, this is like five sermons all in one on how the world, this culture, has called all the evil good and all the good evil. But when you come to face-to-face with Jesus Christ with the good news of, of your evilness, you recognize you want to get away from it. Does that mean you never sin again? No. But you don't stay there. You don't stay there like, you know, some people do. Because you've been saved by grace in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. For it has been granted to you. As a matter of fact, Paul says, Paul says that it has been granted to you. Okay? That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for Him. It's been given to you. It's been granted to you. God calls sinners to Christ and grants them the capability of exercising that saving faith. And now it's up to you to live that saving faith through Him. It's up to you, but it's through Him. All I have to do is surrender and stop trying to do this all on my own. See, because I can't do it. I know I can't do it. And repentance and obedience go hand in hand. And they, they, they hold on to this faith that God has given you, obedience and repentance. And you, you obey, then you repent, you change your mind, you transform your thinking. You're transforming the way you used to see things. You, you stay away, you, you run to God, you run away from evil and you chase God. You turn to God and you desire God even more so. Obedience is the hallmark, the stamp, the brand, the seal, the number one trait of that of a true believer. How do you know a person is a true believer? Because he obeys. How do you know that the, the, the football players that you see on a field are professional football players? Because they obey. There's certain rules, there's certain things that they have to do in order to be ready to play the game. You know, I love football. I do. I'll go out and play with any team that'll let me play. You think they'll let me out of the team? <laughs> But I know all the, I know all the rules. Yeah. But have you practiced? Have you conditioned? How old are you? You know, are you, I don't even think you're not a football player. Yes, I am. I played football in high school. Come on. God, give me, uh, all I need is a, just one million. I don't need hundreds of millions. Just give me one million. I'll go out there and get beat up for you. How do they know I'm not a football player? Because I haven't obeyed the rules or the conditions. How do you know that the believer is a believer? Because he obeys. The Word of God. And that, beloved, is the strongest indicator 
the number one brand, the hallmark, the, the seal, the trait of all believers. Obedience. And when you obey such obedience, oh, it's just incomplete without, without, the, without the word. You need the word. You need to have the word. See, um, it was somebody that said, good works do not make a man good, but a good man does good works. It's not what you do that's going to make you good. You do them because you've been made righteous. Obeying is not going to make you better. Doing good works is not going to make you good. But you do those things because God has saved you and you're saying thank you and always looking up ahead, always looking even further ahead. Number three, the gospel gives hope to believers. The gospel gives hope hope to believers. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Paul says in verse five, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. You've heard that expression before, the gospel truth. This is the gospel truth. It's the God, and that's where it comes from, right here. We say it so often. Number one, we don't know what the truth is anymore. Number two, we really don't know what the gospel is. But he says here, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the hope. See, the one thing that the gospel message gives you is hope. If you don't have hope, if you don't have hope. Now, there was a rule of sevens or a rule of, I think it was a rule of sevens. You know, you can live... You can live seven, or maybe it's the rule of threes, excuse me, it's the rule of threes. You can live three days without water. You can live three minutes without oxygen. You can live, you can live three, but you can't live three seconds. I forget how it goes, but you can't live three seconds without hope. You have this hope in your life, knowing, because you've placed your faith that it's not just a dark faith. It's not just a blind faith. You've placed your faith in the evidence of Jesus Christ that was prophesied hundreds of years ago that Jesus Christ fulfilled and the prophecies are coming fulfill, are fulfilling even now. And you place your hope in your Savior, the hope of the world. And, and everything is falling apart everywhere. Everything is crumbling down. Evil seems to be rising and it looks good and all the good stuff that, that we used to proclaim now is evil. Bitter for sweet, good for bad. And we see it all happening around us and the one thing that holds us together and holds us true in the gospel message is that it gives you hope. Hope is one component of the, the, the faith, love, and hope. Like in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is thankful not only that the Colossians' faith and love has, has increased, but also that their hope, their faith and hope are linked together. And, and we believe and we hope and we know and we understand. Hebrews 6.18 in your outline says this, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. There is this hope, and it's an anchor, and it's a sure and steadfast anchor. It is holding us in the storm. It is holding us in this culture. It is holding us to God's Word. God's Word and God Himself is the hope that He's given you. And this hope, 
helps you through the darkest times. Okay, Lord, I know that I'm struggling now. Yes, my loved ones have gone on. Yes, this is all happening with, around me. Yes, the nation seems to be falling apart. The world seems to be falling apart. But I have my hope in you. You know why? Because we are His children. God has made us His children. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. He will fulfill our hope by making us like His Son. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This is the promise, this is the hope that thousands, if not millions, of believers have clung to and held on to in the midst of persecution. John, in the, on the island of Patmos, had been boiled in oil and lived and sent out to this island as a prison. And there he encountered Jesus Christ and gave us the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ revealed to him. And there he says, you know, I have this, I'm God's child. And I can hold on to that. In Romans 8.18 it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Moses serves as an example of one who has willingly sacrificed the present reality and all the good things that he had. If you know the story of Moses, Moses at that time, there was supposed to be a deliverer being born. And so what Pharaoh did, he says, I don't want to deliver taking my slaves away from me. They're my slave labor. Come on, you know. I, I just, uh, there, there can't be a deliverer. So he had everybody go out and kill uh, the midwives to deliver the babies and kill the firstborn baby, the all, all male children. And as they were being born, they would, they would kill them. Well, uh, Miriam, what, what she did is she took Moses, her little baby brother, and put him in a basket and put him in the river. And Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, was out bathing in the river, and she hears the noise in the reeds, and she says, the, the God of the river has given me a child. Now I need to take care of this child. So it's a gift from the God of the Nile, and I'm taking him home. And Miriam was, was right there watching. She says, oh no, what are they going to do with him? And she saw how the princess really loved him, and she, she had no children. And so she ran to the princess, uh, my princess, if you'd like, uh, my lady, I, I can get you a mother that has lost her baby, who can nurse this child for you. And guess what? It was Moses' mom. They got to raise her own child until he was weaned, and she gave it back to the princess. Moses grew up in this powerful uh, office that, that was one of the, the most powerful in the nation, in the world. And Pharaoh had all that he wanted. And Moses grew up knowing the language, the, the laws, and everything, and he had everything he needed. Yet, the Bible says that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mis mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You see right there in Hebrews, it tells us that there is pleasure in sin, but it's fleeting. It's just passing by. It's not enough to keep you going. Because you know as well as I do, you, you do one sin and it makes you happy, that's not enough. You gotta go to the next sin, and you gotta go to the next sin, and it increases, and it, and it multiplies exponentially in your life, and you're, fi you're finally having to look for something that'll fill the next void. And Moses, for 40 years, had received all of these benefits of being Pharaoh's son, or grandson, in a sense. 
But he himself said, you know, I'd rather be mistreated with these slaves than to live in this sin that is only going to be just for some time. He considered, watch this, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Even Moses knew of the Christ. Even Moses knew what was going to happen of this, of this reproach that the Christ was going to get. And he says, I consider that greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward by faith. He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The anger of the king flared up against Moses because Moses killed one of the guards of his, uh, of his, of his company. And so the king got mad at him and Moses read and he fled and he fled for another 40 years into the wilderness. 40 years in the palace of the king, 40 years in the wilderness. He went to seminary school. That's where he went. He went to go get trained by God until God shows up in a burning bush. God used Moses at the age of 80 to go down and to rescue the people out of Egypt. And the rest is history, as you know. He considered it reproach. Moses did not want to live in this life of squalor, this life of sin, this life of whatever it is. And, and Moses, as I said before, knew this. Sin is fun. It's enjoyable. It's pleasurable. It is. And if it wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. But we are obedient to what God says. And so therefore, what we do is we, we know that the gospel gives us hope, not as the world gives. Number, number four, the gospel bears fruit. The gospel bears fruit. It has to bear fruit. Which has come to you, as Paul says, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace in truth. Paul says it has been bearing fruit. It has come against you, amongst you, and it's blowing up. People know about your faith. People know about what, what has gone on. And, and as a matter of fact, Jesus even said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. All nations are going to hear this gospel message. And it keeps multiplying and multiplying. Started with Jesus, then the three, then the twelve, 120, 3,000. And it's exploded ever since. And they thought they could stop this, but it's an unmovable force that goes throughout the world. You cannot stop the power of the Holy Spirit. It is going to be proclaimed until the end of time. It produces fruit. It continues to produce fruit. And the whole thing about this fruit is that it multiplies and it grows and it develops in a person. Not only in the person, but also in people. It, it multiplies spiritually and it multiplies exponentially within the church. Because when you grow, guess what? Other people will come to know Jesus Christ as well. That's why number five is so important. Point number five, the gospel is dispersed by believers. It's reported by believers. It is proclaimed by believers. The word that is used sometimes, it is preached by believers. Some of you are saying, I'm not a preacher. Well, you need to get ready to be one. I can't get up there and preach like you, Pastor. Well, you don't have to come up here and do it. I mean, if you can, great. If God has called you, you know, I'll step aside. It's your turn. Let me hear you preach the gospel message. I'd love to be able to get more people to preach the gospel message. Let's do it. See, what Paul says in verses 7 and 8, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Just like this. And he's been talking about the gospel message all the way around, all, all along. Just as you learned it, learned what? The gospel message. As you learned it from our beloved servant, as you learned it from him, just like you've done so, 
on your behalf. He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You've learned it, you've taught it, and you teach it to somebody else. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, one of my favorite passages, and the things you have heard in the and the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to reliable men who will be able to teach others. It should be going four generations. The things you have heard me, that's two, that's one and two. Entrust to reliable men, that's three, that they can teach somebody else, that's four. There should be this four generational gospel presentation, gospel teaching, discipleship process going on in our life. Paul entrusted Timothy, and we should be entrusting somebody else. If God is going to do the saving, is what some people ask me. If he's going to do the saving, if he's the one that opens the hearts, if he's the one that saves, then why do I have to proclaim it? Why do I have to preach it? Because God's going to save who's going to save. That's one of the arguments of predestination, of Calvinism, I guess you would say. That's one of the arguments of people that, that, uh, you know, that say, well, if God's already going to choose who he's going to choose and not choose who he's not going to choose, why, why even go out and evangelize? Which kind of makes sense when you think about it. But if you don't know your scripture, you'll say, okay, well, it makes sense. But if you know your word, you'll know number one, first thing is because God commanded it. Go. He said, go and make disciples. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is an apprentice. A disciple is a student of the one that is being, who is discipling. He's entrusted us to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then teach them. So our responsibility is to go and make disciples. We proclaim, and we go back to the beginning. We proclaim the word and we proclaim the good news. This is the good news because of the bad news. And this we do it, and you receive it by faith, not by what I do. If you don't receive it by faith, I back off. I say, all right, you know what? I gave you the gospel message. All I can do is give it to you again, and probably a third time. But you know, after that, uh, it's, if the Holy Spirit ain't working in your life, I'm just beating a dead horse. Why proclaim the gospel? Because God commanded it. He said in Acts chapter 1, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Not, I'd like for you to be my witnesses. No, you know, I kind of hope you would be my witnesses. No, you will be his witnesses. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And guess what? Here's the promise. And lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. You do that, he'll be with you. Well, here's another reason. Another reason why God wants us to share this. Well, because he wants to use you. He wants, it pleases God for you to share this message. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom. See, at the very beginning, God, God's wisdom is just manifest. I mean, the heavens declare His glory. You, you can just hear the rolling thunder. You can see the grandeur of the trees and the forest and the, and the meadows. And, and you can hear the birds swift. I mean, you can hear them singing. Sweetly singing. That's the word I was looking for. You can hear, you can just see, and you can just sense the, the presence of God in, in everything that He created. 
But that wisdom somehow got mixed up, something else created, and some, someone else did this, and, and you know, these gods did the water, and this god did the sun, and this god did the moon, and all these different gods. And so what Paul says, well, for since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The folly, the foolishness, the, the I mean, just our awkwardness. Your folly, our folly, it, you know, things that just, you know, people look at us and say, well, that's just dumb. It doesn't matter. God's going to use that to save people. It pleases God to use you. You want to please God? Share the gospel message. Because it pleases God. Well, well then how are they going to learn? How are they going to know? Let me conclude with this. Turn to Romans chapter 10 in your Bibles. Romans chapter 10. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul has given us this outline of what, of how it works. In Romans chapter 10. And the, the message of salvation to all starts in verse 5. When he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does commandments who does the commandments shall live by them but the righteousness based on faith says do not say to your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to say bringing christ up from the dead that, that has a lot of significance i just don't have time to go into it right now let me get to the point of this verse 8 but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, listen to this, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, people take that verse and say, look, all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you'll be saved. That's it. That's it. That's all I got to do. It says, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Am I saved? Yeah, it says right there that you're saved. All right, we'll see you later. Bye. And we take that verse out of context, but we got to understand how it all fits together. Look at verse, uh, because if you look at verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There, I read most of it. I, I, it says the same thing. All I have to do is call on his name. All I have to do is just open my mouth and, and say it and believe it in my heart, and I'm saved. Well, here's the rest of it. Verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Okay, well, if they don't believe in him, how are they going to do it? Well, that's a good question. You know, Pastor, how, how are they going to do that? Well, I mean, they don't even believe in him. How, how are they going to call on him? How does it, does it just happen? I mean, is it something that just spontaneously, oh, okay, I'm going to call on him because you said. How then are they going to call on him whom they not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? You see, how is it they're going to believe in something they haven't even heard about? And how are they to hear without someone proclaiming? And how are they to preach unless they are, they are sent. 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. you get that? How do they believe? Well, they got to hear the word. How do they hear the word? Well, it's got to be the word of Christ. Well, you mean, you mean I just can't say in my, in my mind you know, that I believe? No. You just can't say it. The only way that you can say this, Paul takes it from the end to the beginning, says faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. It is God's word that penetrates the heart through the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of sin. And when the world is convicted of sin, when you are convicted of sin, it opens your heart. God opens your heart, as we read just a little bit ago. He opens the heart, your heart, and he places the spirit in your heart and you are given faith. Faith that came to you because you heard the word of God and it was by somebody proclaiming the word of God. How are they going to hear if they're not sent? How are they going to know and believe if they don't even hear? And Paul takes it all the way down to the end because faith comes from hearing and not just anything, but hearing the word of Christ. That Beloved is our responsibility. God wants to use you. He's commanding you. He, it brings to him pleasure when you proclaim his word. You see, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And as a matter of fact, he makes a little, uh, he makes a little note here how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know what? If, if your feet hurt, if they're tired, if they got ingrown toenails, if they're crusty, please don't show them to me. When you share bunions, when you share the good news, guess what? You got beautiful feet. You carry the gospel message. You carry the message of Christ. And people hear it. And once it penetrates their ears, it penetrates their heart. And then at that point, the Holy Spirit does the rest. But He wants you, beloved, to share the word, to disperse it. To deliver it, to proclaim it. That is our responsibility. And why aren't people coming to Christ? Well, let me ask you, how many people have you shared the gospel message with? How many people do you know that need to hear the gospel message? Well, you know, Pastor Sal, I'm kind of afraid, you know, I don't know, and you know, I'm just, you know, I've shared this with you here a few weeks ago. In China, if they catch you proclaiming the gospel message, they beat you and throw you into prison. In Afghanistan, if they catch you preaching the but but they preach the message anyways. In Afghanistan or uh, Iraq, if they catch you preaching the gospel message, they not only beat you and cage you and and threaten you with death, but they take all your possessions and people continue to preach the gospel anyways. In the United States, eh, I just don't feel comfortable. I'm, I'm afraid of what people might say, and so we don't preach the gospel. Beloved, people need to hear the gospel message. We're sinners. We're destined to go to hell. You know a lot of sinners. You know a lot of people in your, in your circle of influence, in your jobs, in your school, in homes. It's, you know, and, and it's sweet when you come across somebody that, that you know that, I mean, that you don't know, but, but that you realize and you recognize that they are also believers. Praise God. You know, we, we should do this together and share the gospel message. 
And so Paul is excited about Coloss and the people at the church. And he says, you know, I, I know about your faith. I know about what you've done. You, you know, I, from the very beginning, because, this is why I'm excited. This is why I pray for you. I always thank God for you. I always thank him because of what you've done. I always thank him for, the, for, for what God is doing through you and through the ministers. You know, we always give thanks, our Lord Jesus Christ, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. I mean, the, there is a bond and a love and a fellowship that goes on within the saints. He says, you know, and because of the hope that is laid up in you in heaven, now, you, you know that regardless of what might happen, you have this strong hope of this we have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and it's bearing fruit everywhere and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard this gospel message, understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from from your beloved servant, our beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ, our Lord, on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul is just, man, I am just jazzed about what you guys are doing with the gospel. He says, I, I, I'm really just excited. I'm in prison. And I, I love what you guys are doing. You know, my, my fruit, my crown, my joy. And he goes on a little bit more. We'll talk about this next week, about the gospel message. And, and we kind of lose it if we don't reflect back to, to the subject of the, of the, uh, and the verbs that are attached to the subject that he is addressing and how he's going to them and, and what it, what it all, how it all ties together. And we'll bring that all together next week. But he's just really excited about this message. And I'm excited about what God's going to do in your life as well. Let me ask you to stand. Because with the gospel message, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to, Try to persuade people or beg people or pay people. You just give it and that's it. If they don't take it, that's on them. And beloved, I know we can do this. If they can do it around the world with all the persecution that's going on, we can do it right here. Father in heaven, I know that we've come a long way just to, pro just to say that we need to proclaim the message. From the start of this letter to, the, to this point right here, it's the message, your message of salvation to your people, to those whom you're going to save. And so, Lord, I know it's, it's, it was a, a long journey to get here. But, Father, as we tie it all together, we recognize that the responsibility comes down to us being involved in what you're doing. You're going to hold us accountable to that. We know that we can't save anyone. We know that we can't force anyone. But we are responsible for sharing this good news. How are they going to hear if no one's sent, how are we going to be sending, sending them? If it, who are we going to send? Because faith comes from hearing. Father, thank you once again. I pray that you dismiss us now from this place, but never from your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>